Dear Jesus, uh, we just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here and to meet together and to meet in this school. Um, we thank you, Lord, uh, just for each and every person that you've brought here this morning, and we thank you for your word and how you use it to pierce our hearts and to convict us and to show us your love and your power and your grace. And so, God, we just ask that above all else this morning, Lord, that you would be glorified. God, we pray that your people would hear from you, that those of us who don't know you would come to know you through the power of your word and the power of your spirit. Father, would you just um, speak through your word and speak through me this morning as we all just, um, just try to get a little bit more of the picture of who you are. We love you and we praise you and we give you glory this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in John chapter 13. We are in week two of Kenny's six-week sabbatical, which has been really interesting when all of a sudden Kenny just is out of the picture for the first time in four years. But I know that he has been being refreshed, and God's teaching him a ton in his own private time with the Lord, and it's been really great. Um, so we have found ourselves in chapter 13 of John. We've been going through John all year long, um, and now all of a sudden we find ourselves in chapter 13, and we're in the last moments of Jesus' life. So the prior 12 chapters have been um, John building a picture of who Jesus is and making a, a case for the evidence of his deity, his identity as both human and God by his miraculous works. And when we find ourselves in chapter 13, um, we're going to spend from 13 to 17 is going to be this very intimate time that we have a glimpse into. During chapters 13 to 17, Jesus is spending all of this time with just his disciples. And he's going to use this time right before he goes to the cross, right before he goes back to be with the Father. He's going to use this time to really teach his disciples in an intimate way what it's going to look like for them to continue to live out his work of bringing the kingdom here to earth um, after he's gone. And so this next few chapters is really exciting. I love these chapters of the gospel because it's just this really beautiful, intimate time where you really see into the heart of Jesus. He's not standing on a, on, a, on a mountain preaching a sermon to those who don't know him. He's talking intimately to those who do know him. So we're going to look um, at chapter 13, verses 1 through 20 this morning. We're going to break it up into two parts. So join me in John chapter 13, and we'll go through verse 11 to start. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. Okay, 
So we're going to pause here for a minute. We get this picture of the, we're, they're reclining at dinner, and I spoke a few weeks ago about another dinner party where they're reclining around the table, and the Jewish posture would be the, the table is low, and they're laying around, so they're all reclining. What would happen in the Greco-Roman world and in early uh, Jewish culture is that when you would come into somebody's home, you would have your feet washed. So imagine you're wearing sandals all the time, but there's no paved roads, there's no proper sewage system, there's no uh, trash collector. So as you're walking in just sandals, your feet are getting incredibly dirty with all the things that you can imagine they're getting dirty with. So when you would enter into somebody's home, there would be a servant there at the door, and they would take off your sandals, and they would wash your feet for you before entering the home. With the, Jew- with the Jewish culture, what they would do is that they believed that this was such a low act, this was such an act of servitude, that not even the Jewish servants would do this. They would actually have separate Gentile servants who would wash the feet. So not only is it low and reserved for servants, but not even Jewish servants would do it. They would have an, a second tier, a lower level of servant to do it. So this is an incredibly humble act of service reserved for the lowest servants. So we see that they're reclining around the, din- uh, around the table, and dinner's going to be served. And the fact that Jesus gets up to wash their feet means that nobody washed them. So they're all sitting around the table with dirty feet. So you've got all of Jesus' loved ones, his, his closest friends, his disciples, who've walked with him through all of this ministry. And they're sitting around the table, and everyone's kind of like, so, like, who's going to wash your feet? And none of the disciples think, you know what, we've been learning from Jesus about humility and love and service. Like, I'm going to get up and wash the feet. None of them do that. The one person that does do it is Jesus himself. And so we see him get up. As a meal is being served, he interrupts the ceremonies to demonstrate the depth of his love. So the first point is, I'm going to break it down into three points. Three things that I think that this passage is showing us about Jesus. The first one is that Jesus shows us the extent of his love in this passage. There's seemingly a lot of better things that Jesus could choose to do with the last hours of his life. He could run around and heal everybody that he finds. He could go run out and do a couple more sermons and try to bring some more people into the kingdom. But he doesn't do this. He instead takes this time to bring in those closest to him and to serve them by washing their feet. This is a strange thing that's happening. This would have been, I mean, the table would stop talking. Everybody would be like, what is he doing? What he is doing is he's going to continue to teach them through this act who God is, what God is willing to do for his people, and to continue to train them how to live out this upside-down kingdom nature once he's gone. He knows that the time has come for him to suffer and die, and yet his heart is still to be with his people and to show them who the Father is and to show them how to live that out once he's gone. And so he shows the full extent of his love here. In the beginning of the passage, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this to the end, it's ace telos. And it can either mean in a, a temporal manner, he loved them to the very end of his life, or it can be translated as to the fullest extent. So he's going to, going to use this foot washing to show them the fullest extent of his love. What he is willing to do for them in sitting down at their feet and washing their feet is going to pale in comparison to what he's about to go and do on the cross. And so he starts building this picture for them of the fullest extent of God's love. And so he adopts the posture of a servant. 
like I said, this is a, the most degrading and lowly task that would be done. The only time it wouldn't be done by a servant is if it was going to be done out of extreme love and devotion. So a child might do this for their parent. Um, a disciple might wash the feet of their master and teacher. But because it was so lowly and degraded, it was shown as like, I'm willing to humble myself this much before you to show you how much I love you. And so we see that in this, in this instance, Jesus is again flipping what they ex- expect on its head. And the master is going to wash the servant's feet. This is why Peter can't handle it. He's watching and he's waiting. Okay, who's going to wash my feet? And then the master gets up to do it and he's like, you're not washing my feet. Like, I'm not going to let this happen. This is absurd. Peter's response is probably similar to all of the disciples' response inwardly. But if you know anything about Peter, Peter's a lot like me where he can't just keep his mouth shut. If, If he feels something and he needs to react, he just blurts things out or cuts off people's ears or does whatever it is that Peter does. That makes me understand and resonate with him so much. So, um, so he humbles himself. In this taking a posture of a servant, he humbles himself. There's no one there to wash the feet, and so Jesus does it. This is in direct contrast to what the disciples have been doing. If we were to take a look back um, and look at other gospel accounts, the disciples towards the end of Jesus' life, when they're starting to feel like, oh, like this guy is the Messiah, he's God, he's our buddy, we're close to him, all of a sudden, them being from this honor-shame culture where status and power and honor mean everything, they start having side conversations about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to get to sit at his right hand, who's going to be the first. And so Jesus goes, and the tale of them talking about who's going to be the best Jesus, not only, he doesn't just take this opportunity to say, like, that's not how it works. He, who is the best, who they've said they believe is God, is going to take the lowest position here. This is in direct contrast to what they have been grappling with themselves. He's always taking what everyone expects and flipping it over. He's convinced his disciples that he is God and that as God, he doesn't take this uh, opportunity to gain political or military power over the Roman Empire. Instead, he takes the role of a servant. And ultimately, we're going to see him take the role of the suffering servant that they would have been so familiar with from Isaiah 53. We're going to see him step, take his servanthood to a whole nother level in just a few chapters. For the Almighty God to take the role of a servant, get down on his knees, and scrub the dirt and the mud and the other stuff off of their feet would be unheard of. Could you imagine if your feet were just wretched with mud and stuff and junk and you haven't had a pedicure in like way too long and it's just not looking good down there and Jesus shows up and is like, I'm here and you're like, oh my gosh, my Lord and my God. And he's like, hold on, let me just scrub your feet real quick. You'd be like, no, please don't. Like there's a lot better things we can do with like you being here and I'm in awe of you and you'd probably be moved. Let me wash your feet. But Jesus says, no, it's necessary that I wash yours. The other remarkable part of this foot washing that happens is that he washes the feet of the one who will betray him. He doesn't skip over Judas knowing what's going to happen. He knows ahead of time that he would betray him, that he's going to go out and he's going to sell Jesus' life for some money. Jesus is going to be handed over to, the, to the, the authorities that he's currently been kind of hiding away from. He's going to be handed over by one of his own inner circle. That in this time when we're looking at this intimate scene with Jesus taking the time to bring his most intimate friends and followers into this room to talk to them, 
Judas is there with him. Judas has had the same experience with Jesus that the other disciples have had. He's seen the same miracles. He's heard the same teaching. All of the stuff that they've seen about Jesus that have led them to believe that this is the Messiah, Judas has been there. And yet Judas is going to choose to betray him and sell him out. And so as Jesus is getting down and he's washing all of the disciples' feet, he gets to Judas. And he washes Judas' feet. That's powerful. That is a powerful image. Excuse me. He knew it would betray him, and he would still do it. He didn't withhold anything from Judas, even though he knew it was going to happen. Judas had just as much love lavished on him as the others. In this act, when the disciples will later look back at this scene, when Jesus washed their feet, they're going to then know what Judas did. You think it's not going to stick out to him? How did Jesus? Jesus must have known. And they watch how Jesus treated Judas, knowing what was going to happen. Talk about humility. Talk about the fullest extent of love to know ahead of time that this person is going to literally lead you to your death. And you get down and you serve them and you wash their feet. It's far easier to love those who love you. But Jesus shows that God's love is able and willing to love even those who would plot his own death. So we see here through this act that he's showing the full extent of his love. He's showing what, what lengths he is willing to go to to show, I am God, but I am not a God who sits high and far away. I am a God who comes low to serve in love and humility. This is a very different view of God than they would have had of this Messiah who's going to come in political power and glory and defeat the Romans and restore Israel to its former glory with King David like king on the throne. He comes and he says, no, what the kingdom of God looks like is getting on your knees and serving those who love you and hate you. Serving those who will bless you and who will curse you. What the kingdom of God doesn't look like is standing on a soapbox and screaming at everybody what they should do better or wagging our finger and telling everybody what political stance they should take on any number of issues. The kingdom of God looks like most of the time, more often than not, shutting our mouths and bending our knees. Right? And we don't, we, we don't say this just because we're saying it. We're saying it because in the last acts of Jesus' life, This is how he chooses to put the kingdom of God on display, not by one last powerful sermon, but by one one last act of service. So Jesus is going to also show through this passage, through this, this event, the necessity of his cleansing. And in a very redundant second point there that only stood out to me as I looked it over again this morning, it's necessary for them to be cleansed. Didn't get very creative with the wording there. Jesus is going to show them that it is necessary for them to be cleansed. All along from the beginning of the Bible, everything has been culminating into this moment of this God-man, this Messiah, come to earth to dwell among men in flesh. And when we see all through the Old Testament building up is that there there is a chasm between God and man. Sin has caused there to be a divide between God and man. And the whole Old Testament we see God providing ways for them to regain intimacy with him for them to shed the sin and to, and to walk forward in relationship with him. And so he institutes all of these sacrifices and rituals and cleansings that happen, but they're all pointing to one that will uh, do this once and for all. 
And so all along through the Old Testament, we're pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, and here we are, and we have Jesus. And we're, we're going to come across this cleansing on the, cro- on the cross that is more complete and more once and for all than they expected. And so he's telling them through this foot washing, you need to be cleansed. You need me to scrub the dirt and the muck and the mire off of you. But this is foreshadowing what they haven't even imagined yet is to come. They're thinking, this is, this is so crazy that you would wash my feet right now. When they're about to see their Lord, their God, their Messiah, and their King hang on a cross. So that once and for all, they are cleansed. We need to be cleansed of our sin. And Jesus is reminding that now at the foot washing and later at the cross. That there is, a, there is a problem between God and man. And we are in desperate need for God to come and cleanse us and save us and bring us into reconciliation with him. And it doesn't come from the power of our will. And it doesn't come from good works and trying to be better. It doesn't come from reading the Bible and saying, okay, these are all the things I need to do and these are all the things I don't need to do. It doesn't come from that. Those things come from an encounter with the risen Jesus. It comes from seeing who God is and that having such an effect on us that we have no choice but to say, okay, I want to do the things that you say I should do because I believe that you're good and you love me and I want to stay away from the things that you say I should stay away from because I believe that you're good and you love me. The cleansing doesn't come from our own effort. It comes from the blood of Jesus. It is necessary for them to be cleansed, but not just cleansed like they've been cleansed before through rituals and works, but cleansed by the blood of Jesus. It has to be Jesus. He says to them, um, he says in verse, um, one of these verses, he says, if I do not wash you, verse 8, he doesn't say if you are not washed, he says if I do not wash you, it's not the same thing if, you're just, if, you're, if your peer gets down and washes your feet right now. You're missing it. It's not about your feet getting clean. It's about the fact that you need to be washed by me. I must wash you. It is Jesus' cleansing alone that saves us. No other cleansing. No other effort to get clean. No other effort to scrub ourselves clean or hope that someone else will scrub us clean. It is Jesus the one that scrubs us clean. The gospel is incredible because the God of the universe can cleanse us and he will cleanse us. And all we have to do is ask him to. It's a free gift. That's, that is incredible. That it is a free gift and that he is willing to. And Jesus says it's necessary in order for them to receive their inheritance. So if we look at verse 8, he says... <clears throat> I do not wash you. You have no share with me. This word share, it's, it's inheritance language. So when we look back at the Old Testament with the Israelites, when they receive their inheritance and the tribes um, are going to go out and settle in the land, they use this language, this, this having a share in the land. It's, it's your piece of the inheritance. It's your part of your birthright. So Jesus is saying, if you don't get cleansed by me, y- you will have no share in my inheritance. Inheritance means that you are a part of a family. If somebody passes away and you know them, you don't just get an inheritance. You receive an inheritance, a part of that, of that kingdom, of that fortune, of that legacy, when you are a part of the family. 
And so for Jesus to say this, what he's saying is that you need to be cleansed by me, not only for the forgiveness of your sins. If it was just for the forgiveness of sins, that would be amazing in itself. But you need to be cleansed not just for the forgiveness of your sins, but because you are going to be a part of receiving an inheritance. And so often we get camped on the forgiveness of sins and the salvific implications of the work on the cross when it's just so much more than a ticket into heaven. It makes us co-heirs with Christ to the kingdom of heaven. And it's almost too big to where we're like, yeah, that feels like big language. I don't really know what that means. It is big. It should feel a little bit overwhelming that when you say yes to Jesus, you become a co-heir to the kingdom of God. And with that, the life that you receive in that. So it makes you part of the family. Titus 3, 4 to 7, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I just almost wish we could just read that like 10 more times right now to really like get it in. Jesus is teaching them through this about the love of God that is being lavished on them to the fullest extent, being willing to humble himself in this way that culturally is reprehensible, and ultimately at the cross will be unfathomable to show them humility that comes along with it, to show the necessity, their need for him to cleanse them, and not only for the cleansing of their sin, but so that they can start to understand what this inheritance looks like for them, what being a co-heir with Christ looks like for them. And so through all of this, he's showing them his love, and he's showing them their need. He's showing them why this all has to happen. And then he's going to go on to explain it a little bit more in showing them a new way to live. And so let's read the second half of our passage this morning in verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus now expands a little bit more, trying to teach them what's going on here. And he's going to show them a new way to live. So he's setting up for them, you are loved by your God and maker. And there has been a way for you to be cleansed and be brought into right relationship with him. And you have chosen that. Maybe not all of you, maybe not Judas, but you disciples, 
You have entered into this with me, and so it is necessary that I wash your feet so that you can understand what it's going to look like to become co-heirs with me, to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living out that mission here on earth. And he's going to show them that what this means is not just salvation. It means a brand new life. And it means a life that starts now when we choose Jesus, and it's that same life that carries on to eternity. It doesn't stop when we die and then something new starts when we get to heaven. What we do now, it matters. How we live our lives now in the kingdom matters. Because once we accept Jesus, we are in the kingdom. And so that's when it starts. Too often we, we teach this ticket to heaven gospel, and that's great once you die. What about now? Because life is hard now. Life is hard now. And what we need is to know that we serve a God whose hope begins now, not later. Where we don't just sit and wait in the pain and suffering until it's all over. And then everything gets better. No, the life of the kingdom through the blood of Jesus is one that starts now. And so he wants to teach them what this new life is about. The new life is one of washing feet. If you don't like washing feet, you're going to have to start getting over it. I've never actually, like, physically washed someone's feet, so I feel like I shouldn't really be able to say that. But let's talk a little bit more, like, symbolically, the life of washing feet. He says in verse 14 and 15, If I then, your Lord and teacher, so the, the, the master, the one who is not the servant, if I have washed your feet, which never happens, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If Jesus can do it, you can do it. If, he, if it's not too beneath him, it's not too beneath us. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Jesus continues, he's, he's always giving this example of himself. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the example. If the King of the universe, if the sovereign Lord that sits on the throne is not too high above to get down and kneel and wash our feet and cleanse us and die on a cross for us, then the people of God should be a people that are defined by humility and love. It should not be like, I should try harder to like love people and like do more humble things. It should be we serve a king who is not above getting down and serving. It should be the lifeblood of the church to be living lives of humble love and service to other people. We must, the church must be categorized by humility and love. We must continue to study the character and life of Christ so that it transforms us. Because when left on our own, we are people of, of hate and pride. We can't try harder to be people of love and humility. We need to pursue Jesus further and deeper and allow him to do that sanctifying work in our lives. We need him to continually, daily be washing our feet, washing away the self and the flesh. In Galatians 5, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we are given freely this new life. It's free, it's available, it's yours for the taking. When we receive it, we must understand what we are receiving and turn around and use it to serve others. We could accept our freedom and our salvation and say, great, I know where I'm going, I have this free ticket to heaven, so now I just got to like deal with life. But we don't understand the gospel if that's the way that we take what Jesus did. Understanding the gospel is understanding I have been given much and been forgiven much. And I have been served to a degree far greater than I ever deserved. And so in response, I want to show people who Jesus is. The church historically does a terrible job of showing the world who Jesus is. We just do a bad job because we are broken and we are fallen and we are prideful. And so we go out and we proclaim the name of Jesus being broken and prideful and, and, and just oftentimes terrible to each other and to people outside the church. But when we understand what Jesus has done, God, it should, it should produce in us this humble realization that we do not deserve what we've been given. And so I want to go out and I want to give a glimpse of Jesus to the world that looks like who Jesus is in serving people, in humble love, in shutting my mouth more often and bending a knee. Could you imagine what this world would look like if every single person who checked the box Christian, who proclaimed to follow Jesus, if when asked about them, if it was that their life was defined by humility and love? I just have to believe the world would be different because there'd be more people choosing to look like Jesus, fighting to look like Jesus, this world is broken, and if the people of God can't be people who are fighting and grappling with our flesh and letting God do the hard work in us so that we're defined by love and humility, I just believe it would change the world. The new life is one of blessing. So in this passage, uh, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A little later on in the same chapter, Jesus will say, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In Luke's account, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In a world, in both, both the ancient world and our world today, where blessing is often, we think of it as power and status and security and financial stability and getting all the things that we hoped and dreamed for. We have a twisted idea of what it means to be blessed. What blessing looks like is to be a fallen and broken human being and have the God of the universe look on you with love and say, not only am I going to give myself fully to you, but I'm going to ransom your life and give you a life that is far more full than any of the things that you think would make you full. And so when we live out this kingdom reality of humble service and love for people, we receive blessing because that is just how it works. Not because when I do these things, I get blessed, but because in the doing, you are being blessed. In the living your life this way, inherent in it is blessing because you are living how you were created to live. The new life is one of significance and mission. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. 
Later in John chapter 13, Jesus is going to say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. All of these other things that you Jews have been harping on for all these years, these, these laws that have really in, entangled you and strangled you, forget all of that. I'm giving you a new one, and it's love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you, like, really study apologetics and, like, get your arguments down. Not by this will people know that you are my disciples if you vote for a particular political party. Not by this will all people know that you are my, my disciples if you stand on a soapbox and scream at people about these two core sins that for some reason we think are worse than the others. No, if you have love for each other, if you have love for each other, this is out of Jesus' mouth himself. It is significant, this new life is significant because it matters. When we accept Christ's cleansing and love, we are co-heirs with him to the kingdom of God. As citizens and heirs to that kingdom, we live out our lives here on earth with far more purpose than eating and drinking and being merry. All of a sudden, what was just getting through the next day is I'm partnering with the creator of the world in showing people that there is hope and light and joy in store for them. It's knowing that I have met Jesus and he has so changed my life that to not go out and want people to know that love, that life-changing love, I can't imagine not living my life that way because it's changed me. There's a deep significance to how we live our lives now. When we understand who God is and what he has done, our response is just to continue to give more and more of him. The fuller the picture we get of him, the more we respond to that picture. When we give our lives to him, we get to become a part of watching his kingdom come here on earth. We get to watch heavenly things happen in a broken world. We get to watch people who are in bondage and broken and with no hope receive life and freedom and hope. And it's not through the huge things. Does God use revivals? Sure. Does God use people like Billy Graham and thousands and thousands? Absolutely. You know what he uses just as much? Tiny acts of humbling ourselves and loving others. What feel like, I'm just going to choose kindness here. I'm just going to choose to not react in my flesh. I'm just going to choose to love this person. I'm going to choose to work out my salvation with my Jesus and work out this sanctification in all the small areas. Through these small acts of service, we see an enormous eternal rate of return. So the result of the work of Christ on the cross is not a ticket to heaven. It's not a reality only to be experienced when we breathe our last breath and stand at some pearly gates. The result of the work of Christ on the cross is life now. It's freedom now. It's a life that is full and purposeful and intentional and fulfilling and exciting and infused with the spirit of the living God. So, why does this matter at all? 
Well, it matters because it really matters in every way, shape, and form that we know who this God is. And so it matters that we know that he is a God of love. It matters that we know that he is not a God who sits far away on a throne and just calls the shots with a wave of his finger. He is the God that, although deserving to be up on a throne, humbled himself and came down in human form only to suffer for the purpose of you knowing him of you knowing how much he loves you and of reconciling you with him for eternity. It matters because what Christ has done is more than salvation from sin and death. It's salvation to freedom and life. He didn't only come to show us how much God loves us, he also came to model how we can partner with him in the movement of the kingdom of God by living lives that show this Jesus to the world. The fact that God loves you at all, no matter how highly you think of yourself, the fact that God loves you at all is mind-blowing. If the only thing you leave here knowing today is the fact that the God, the creator of the universe, loves you, looks at you personally, knows you by name, and says, I know all of your stuff, and I just love you so much that even if it was just you, I'd go to the cross all over again. If that's the only thing you hear today, that's fine. You can turn off your ears now. But the fact that he would die for you is radical and outrageous. The fact that he would adopt you into his family, invite you into his kingdom, and empower you to go live out an active part of that kingdom, that just doesn't make sense to me. But I don't want to miss it. I want to be a part of that. Opportunity to show the love of God to the world should be so humbling and so jaw-dropping that if we even begin to grasp just a tiny bit of what that means, we end up falling at our feet to worship him because he's worthy. My life is not my own because it's been bought with a high price. There's nothing more exciting and freeing and liberating than handing our lives over to the one who both sits on the throne and rules over all, and also the one who sits at our feet and washes them clean. He is both the mighty king and the humble servant. So we're going to spend some time worshiping him. We get to take communion this morning, um, so we're going to do that together. But would you just pray, for, pray with me as we enter into a time of worshiping our, our humble servant king?